0: Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Emily Booter. And it's May 4th, 2017. On this week's special episode, our major recap of this year's Tribeca Film Festival, including The Bottom Line, controversies, and our very own highly anticipated No Film School awards. Plus, who is striking and not striking in the film industry this week. And as always, news you can use about upcoming grant and festival deadlines and indie film releases. (music) Welcome to this week's show, and may the 4th be with you. Yes, it's the favorite day of the year for Star Wars nerds like me. Do you get it, Emily? I most certainly do,
1: and I've never heard that one before.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We are back in downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, after recording last week's show from the NAB showroom in Las Vegas. And we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. So if you weren't making films or at NAB, you might have been here in New York with us at the Tribeca Film Festival. Lots happened there, as always, and we're going to bring you some of the details today. First of all, just like we do with every festival, uh, I'll give you a little bit of the lay of the land of Tribeca. So Tribeca is different from most of the other festivals we cover, primarily because it's competing with all of New York, as opposed to like a South by Southwest that takes over the whole city of Austin. But Tribeca has done a really good job of making the festival kind of like a standout destination and making independent films sexy in a certain way, there are people who come out to Tribeca for the glamour factor who might not normally go to like an indie theatre on purpose. This actually makes the festival less accessible for the average New Yorker because most screenings and passes are insanely expensive. Like an eight-ticket package is 225 bucks, But it means that the festival has money to treat its invited filmmakers very well and might get their films in front of a different kind of influential audience who could help their future projects. So... Arguably a good thing. It's also different because up until last year, there wasn't a clear festival center for people to hang out at and network with other festival goers, which as we say on this show all the time, is one of the main benefits of being at a festival. Now they've introduced the Tribeca Hub, which is a beautiful six-story studio downtown where the immersive and VR work is showcased and some of the talks are given. In my opinion, this hub is now what might make it worthwhile for independent filmmakers to buy the lowest level industry badge. It's 350 bucks and you get access to that space. You can basically park there all day. There's a filmmaker lounge, there's a rooftop bar, there's a press center. And you can meet all kinds of people because basically everybody involved with the festival comes through there at some point.
1: You forgot the best part about Tribeca this year at the Festival Hub. I knew you were going to mention it, Emily. (laughs) Tell us. There was a Nutella crepe bar. And let me tell you, it was everything I wanted and more.
0: (laughs) It was a lifesaver. Seriously, you're like running, you're running out of energy in the middle of a festival day. And like, there were free Nutella filled crepes every day. Thank you, Nutella, for your sponsorship of Tribeca. Again, not really your sort of typical film festival
1: fair. I know what you've been thinking about. You've been lying there, unable to sleep at night, and I know what's been running through your mind. Nutella crepes. Nope, not Nutella crepes. You've been thinking about the bottom line. <laughs> <laughs> the bottom line with Emily Boomer. <laughs> Thankfully, I'm back and I'm here to deliver it to you. I'm your host. Tribeca has just wrapped, which means that at least a few movies have been snatched up by ravenous distributors hoping to deliver good content directly to your eyeballs. One of those eyeball grabbers is The Endless, a sci-fi horror film about two brothers in post-apocalyptic death cults. Very eyeball grabbing, if you ask me. Well Go USA bought the rights to Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson's movie, The Orchard picked up Max Winkler's Flower, which has been described as a twisted coming-of-age tale with a daring performance from lead actress Zoe Deutsch. Apple, of all companies, picked up the festival opener, Clive Davis, The Soundtrack of Our Lives, Chris Perkle's Portrait of a Legendary Music Mogul. And last but not least, my favorite alternative distributor, Oscilloscope Laboratories, picked up November, Rainer Sarnett's Wild Estonian Masterpiece that I will talk about in detail shortly. And that's it for the bottom line. But before we get into more films, we kind of have to address the elephant in the room. Now, let me start here. I was lucky enough to attend the premiere of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale, which, by the way, was exceedingly good. Cinematographer-turned-director Reed Murano helmed the first three episodes, and you can see her visionary aesthetics all over the series. I spoke to her before the premiere, and she told me that she, quote, pushed the boundaries as far as my producers and MGM would let me. I did make some very strange choices, but people got on board with them, end quote. Murano derived inspiration from Stanley Kubrick for her disconcerting framing and beautiful use of natural light. Anyway, let's get to the real meat of the story. After the premiere, about 15 members of the cast and crew got on stage to participate in a panel. When asked about whether or not the show is feminist, mind you, this is based on a Margaret Atwood novel, which is considered one of the seminal feminist fiction texts of our times every single person said no they didn't just shrug it off they actively refuted that the show was feminist here's what the show's star elizabeth moss had to say for me the handmaid's tale is not a feminist story it's a human story because women's rights are human rights so for me i never intended to play peggy as a feminist peggy of mad men i never intended to play offred as a feminist they're women and they're humans So I never approach anything with a political agenda. I approach it from a very human place. Of course, the term feminism has taken on variegated meanings over the years since it was coined. But nowadays, we can mostly all agree that it means that women are equal to men. So by saying that women's rights are human rights, Moss is explicitly identifying as a feminist. The problem is that she sees it as a politicized term, which is ostensibly why she and the cast and the creators distance themselves from the term. Naturally, this caused a wave of backlash on the internet with people speculating, how could it possibly be that a show about women rising up against a theocratic and totalitarian patriarchy is not feminist? I have no idea.
0: That's some strange stuff. I look forward to the sort of continued conversation about it, but there's been so much buzz about the show. I want to see it, even though it
1: sounds really creepy. It is. It's great, though.
0: So, of course, we can't talk about a festival without talking about awards, and the Tribeca Awards come with substantial cash prizes, which we always like to hear from a filmmaker's perspective. Of note this year, now that we're on the feminist tip, is that despite having fewer films in the festival than their male counterparts, female filmmakers dominated the awards. In fact, the top jury awards in all five feature film categories and the audience award winner were all directed and written by women. Those were... Best U.S. Narrative Feature went to Keep the Change, written and directed by Rachel Israel, who also won Best New Narrative Director. Best International Feature went to Son of Sophia, written and directed by Alina Saiku. The Feature Audience Award winner is The Divine Order, directed and written by Petra Volpe. The Best New Documentary Director went to two women, Sarita Kurana and Smitri Mudra, for A Suitable Girl. And the Best Documentary Feature went to *Bobby Jean, directed by Elvira Lind. Bobby Jean also won the awards for Best Documentary Cinematography and Best Documentary Editing. And if there had been an award for Superwoman, Danish director Elvira Lind might have also won that, as she accepted the award via video from the hospital where she had just given birth.
1: Whoa! Damn, girl. That's (laughs) badass. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I didn't see her movie, so I was really curious why the jury found it so special, you know, to give it basically every single award in an overall strong year for Docs. So here's part of their statement. In a diverse field of worthy films, one work captivated our jury with its exquisite blend of emotional depth and rigorous craft. Fulfilling the promise of classic cinema verite, where camera serves as both observer and provocation, this film connected two artists, filmmaker and subject, pushing nonfiction intimacy to bold new places. That
1: is high praise.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to catching Bobby Jean. Another winner who couldn't make it to the awards, and not for such an exciting reason, was Kaveh Mazahiri, whose film Retouch was recognized as Best Narrative Short. He's the first Iranian filmmaker to receive the prize, but unfortunately he couldn't get a visa to come accept it because of President Trump's travel ban blocking entrance from his country. Womp womp. We'd also like to give a shout out to Friday, directed by Laura Moss and produced by a friend of No Film School, Valerie Steinberg. Their film won the Student Visionary Award. I saw it, and I have to give them props for avoiding the rookie tendency to wrap everything up in a neat package. The film has this kind of ambiguous ending that really leaves the audience with an ominous feeling and sort of helps make the story affecting. So, promising uh, future for those two ladies. And now, what you've all been waiting for after you were done waiting for the bottom line... the highly anticipated, very prestigious, world-renowned, no film school awards for films that we would have given awards to if we were on the Tribeca jury.
1: Okay, can I present my award first, my first award? Please. So this film won an actual award for Best Cinematography, and it undoubtedly deserved it, but I'm here to present a different kind of award. And the award for most imaginative movie goes to November, which I mentioned earlier, The imagination in Rainer Sarnett's film is writ large in the cinematography, so they're part and parcel. But I needed an excuse to talk about this film again because it was the most original and risk-taking cinematic endeavor at Tribeca this year. Based on a book of Estonian folklore, November chronicles the strange happenings in a 19th century village where werewolves roam, spirits of the dead live among the living, and villagers must ward off the plague by performing bizarre rituals, and the devil himself can be found in the surrounding forest, tempting villagers to sell their souls. Every single frame of Sarnet's poetic black and white imagery could be a photograph unto itself, and I would frame every single one of them and put them all around my apartment so I could be surrounded by them 24-7 because they are absolutely beautiful. He used many non-actors, and some of them were nearly 90 years old, to bring his wild vision to life, and their faces alone tell a thousand stories. And as weird and experimental as this movie is, it bears some significant 21st century relevance. So thankfully, it's coming to theaters, and you all get to see it.
0: Speaking of imaginative, I gave an award for outstanding programming to Tribeca Immersive and Storyscapes. So much of the credit for these choices go to the very smart Ingrid Kopp and Opiemi Olakemi from the interactive branch of the Tribeca Film Institute, and I give this prestigious award to an entire category because I've been on the interactive VR beat for a while. and this past year, I saw VR and immersive media showcases at most of the other big American fests that do these things, including Sundance. And I still think that Tribeca just does it best. Yes, there are still absurdly long lines when essentially only one person can view a project at one time. But the content here was just so strong this year. And it's it feels like a shift. It's really focused on stories instead of just like, wow, isn't tech cool? One of the things Tribeca does differently is that they actually build out several physical installations that let audiences experience projects in ways they couldn't do at home, even if they own VR headsets. So, like a perfect example of this was this year's Storyscapes Award winner, called Tree Hugger Wawona. 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 Created by a studio that also wins my award for best name, Marshmallow Laser Feast. <laughs> sounds like a band. Yeah, it sounds like a band John would listen to. <laughs> Anyway, this project really took advantage of the immersive idea, figuring out how to use these tools in a way that would never translate to film. You wear VR goggles and motion trackers and a backpack that vibrates at the right times in the story. So again, you know, makes long lines, because you have to suit each viewer up with these things. Um, but this project brings you inside a giant sequoia tree, and what's crazy is that the team even worked with a scent designer to recreate a forest smell that gets pumped out of your headset into your nose, so you feel like you're really there. It's like real smell vision And they worked with someone whose job title is actually plant musician to record the biorhythms of a real tree to create a soundtrack and vibrations out of it. Then, to top it all off, Tribeca built an enormous tree in the middle of the StoryScapes floor so users can actually like feel the trunk and stick their head inside it while they're experiencing the project. So like This particular project, to be honest, was a little gimmicky for my taste, but it does show how Tribeca really goes above and beyond to showcase immersive media to the public. If you're interested in getting into VR yourself, I put up a post with several of the creators at the festival and advice about how
1: they did it, which you can check out on this week's podcast post where we'll link to everything we're talking about here. So if I get the chance to present another award, I would like to present the award for Best Original Screenplay to Angus McLaughlin's Abundant Acreage Available. He wrote and directed the film, and he's best known for his screenplay for Junebug, which was a great movie if you all remember it. So due to this movie's contained setting on a remote farm and a small cast of characters and beautifully written dialogue, it very well could have been a play. But I'm really glad it wasn't because the film's many close-ups afford us the ability to see the nuances of the excellent performances, especially from Amy Ryan in her first leading role, surprisingly. Like any great screenplay, this one thrives on idiosyncrasy. McLaughlin built out the characters as individuals who have their own personal language, senses of humor, fears, and contradictions. These rich characters belong to two families, one who owns the farm and the other that wants to buy it. Throughout the film, McLaughlin explores family, legacy, religion, obligation, and many other complex themes.
0: And my final award is the most stick-with-you film, which I hand to A Grey State, directed by Eric Nelson, who has produced several of Werner Herzog's films, including Grizzly Man, and Herzog actually EP'd this film. There were so many good documentaries this year, but A Grey State really, well, stuck with me. It's about an Iraq war vet and aspiring filmmaker named David Crowley, who went from patriot to skeptic during his two tours in Iraq, And he made a DIY trailer for an ambitious dystopian feature film about a not-that-far-from-reality future where the government has trampled all over civil rights and people uh, are in armed revolt. Not shockingly, this trailer got spread wildly via Internet conspiracy theorists and Tea Party activists. Suddenly, Crowley was becoming the voice of a movement, and his film was poised to receive real Hollywood funding. Then, Crowley and his wife and baby were found murdered in their home with Alu Akbar written in blood on the wall. Needless to say, the conspiracy crowd went absolutely bananas, but extensive police investigations revealed that Crowley himself had committed the murder suicides and written the Alu Akbar on the wall himself in his wife's blood. Yeah. So, after the investigation was over, the police turned over the computers and 13,000 photographs and hundreds of hours of video that they found in his house, including the carefully crafted playlist that was playing on a loop when the bodies were found, to Eric Nelson, this filmmaker, who turned them into this documentary, A Grey State, and even he himself uh, called the film in our interview, the Feel Bad Movie of the Year. I think what's so affecting to me as a filmmaker about this movie is not only that the film subject was a filmmaker himself, but that in this world where we have so many tools to constantly document our lives, someone can actually document in detail their own descent into madness and murder. It's uh, it's really something. So, yeah, I'll say overall it was I had a really fun Tribeca, despite the fact that there were some pretty freaking dark movies in it. Um, and it was, like I said, a really, really strong year for documentaries with Flames, for Akeem, Bobby Jean. I don't know how you feel, Emily, but I feel
1: like I heard a lot more buzz
0: about docs than narratives this year.
1: Definitely. Um, I think people have come to know Tribeca as a doc fest. Um, and even though there are narratives, people kind of view them as celebrity vehicles or like public interest movies, not in the sense of like the general sense of that word in the sense of, you know, these are the kind of movies where people are going to pay a lot of money to come see them in the New York crowds. So movies that will play well with New York audiences, um, which aren't necessarily the best movies always. So um, I don't know. I, I In talking to a lot of the buyers and distributors that I know, people were saying that the docks were really the only reason to go to Tribeca this year, which I found to be an interesting perspective.
0: That's really, really interesting. I hadn't heard it quite that way before, that this is almost becoming known as a doc fest. I mean, nobody would say that, actually. I feel like nobody on the festival side. But certainly, I mean, the docks in the last couple of years have just been absolutely stellar. And I think the truth is that, you know, in some ways there are just more, like, as the quality of narrative films overall decreases because so many more people can make them um, and more cheaply, and there's less money being put into them from Hollywood and all of these reasons, like at the same time, the quality of documentaries overall has been increasing for some of the same reasons, like because they're lower cost to make and more people can make them. It's an interesting moment, um, and I wonder what it means for kind of like the future of the industry, but I will say that you know we started out this segment talking about how Tribeca is sort of like this elite festival where people spend all this money, but hey, I mean if some of that money is going to documentary films, all the ones I went to were sold out, I think it's fantastic. So lots has happened in the last couple weeks because last week we dedicated our show to NAB and then we were at Tribeca, so we did want to bring you a uh, up to speed on a couple other news items that uh, have emerged in the last couple weeks.
1: The biggest news item by far is that we can all breathe a sigh of relief because the writer strike is not going to happen. Two weeks ago, we reported on the grim possibility of the writer's strike, which would have shut down Hollywood and cost the industry $200 million per week, not to mention no new TV shows for the fall season. Negotiations between the Writers Guild of America and the Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents the studios and a lot of the major networks, were touch and go and lasted nearly a month. It was damn near close, but a strike was averted as of late Monday night, when the WGA and AMPTP reached a hard-won agreement. The deal is a major win for TV writers, who have been shortchanged for years as shows have become longer and increasingly more expensive to produce. The negotiating committee, which included a whole host of acclaimed TV writers, such as house creator David Shore, Jonathan Nolan of Westworld, lost Damon Lindelof, and House of Cards' Bo Williman, made the following gains in a three-year contract. They got a 15% increase in pay TV residuals, roughly $15 million in increases in high-budget SVOD residuals. And, for the first time ever, residuals for comedy variety writers, as well as job protection on parental leave. The WGA also broke ground on the span issue, which we spoke about a couple weeks ago, winning a revised contract of 2.4 weeks for work for each episodic fee, with strict compensation for overtime. But there are still some issues on the table. For one, the WGA is interested in securing script parity for its writers, which would ensure that scripts for all platforms— are subject to the same wage floors, regardless of production budget. The union also hopes to land major salary increases for many categories of writers. So while it's a short-term victory, the three-year contract is also a band-aid, and the future of TV writing still hangs in the balance.
0: Meanwhile, there were picket lines this week in another part of our industry, and one that many of us feel conflicted about since the company in question is near and dear to our hearts. At b Photo here in New York, workers went on a May Day strike to protest their jobs moving to New Jersey, the state next door. So here's what's particularly shady. The company's move is a response to unionizing by workers in its Brooklyn warehouse. According to Gothamist, b workers voted to join United Steelworks International in the fall of 2015, following years of alleged labor abuses detailed in a Department of Labor administrative lawsuit. A year later, in the midst of contract negotiations with the union, the company announced it's shutting the Brooklyn warehouse down and moving to the neighboring state of New Jersey, which is an impossible commute for most of the 330 current workers, as there's no public transportation between the two areas. To make matters worse, shortly thereafter, the Federal Department of Labor charged BH with discriminating against Hispanic workers with lower wages than white employees and even forcing them to use separate, dirtier restrooms than their white counterparts. Oh my God. I know. What the hell, BH? So, I mean, many of us get our gear there. I bought my first camera and every single one since at B&H. But now, honestly, I'm thinking twice. Speaking of gear, we are foregoing gear news this week because we devoted last week's entire episode to the world's biggest gear showcase, NAB. But if you're hungry to know about all the latest filmmaking tools, make sure to go to nofilmschool.com where we published an astonishing 85 videos from the NAB showroom floor, featuring first looks at everything from the newest cameras to lights, gimbals, gadgets of all types. I also want to take this chance to shout out our team of 12 who worked their asses off over those four days of NAB,
1: led by the fearless John Fusco and Micah Van Hove. Thank you all so much. And now for some indie films coming out in theaters and on VOD this week. Kenneth Lonergan's major awards movie, Manchester by the Sea, is coming to Amazon Prime Instant May 5th, starring Michelle Williams and Casey Affleck, who basically won every lead actor award you could possibly win for his performance in the movie. The film is one of 2016's best, in my opinion. Affleck plays Lee Chandler, a reticent handyman barely scraping by in a blue-collar Boston suburb. His gruff demeanor and solitary existence betray an inner struggle that is far too oppressive to readily surface. When he's summoned back to his New England hometown after news of his brother's death, Lee has no choice but to reenter his former life, and with it, the memory of an unimaginable trauma. So that might have been the feel-bad movie of last year. Coming to Netflix on May 1st is
0: Nerdland, directed by animation weirdo Chris Pranowsky. And as John says, this is one movie that's definitely not for the kids, Pronosky was one of the creators of the Adult Swim powerhouse animation company, Titmouse, which is resp- which is hard to say without laughing, not going to lie, and is responsible for shows like Metalocalypse and Super Jail. And Nerdland carries much of the same flavor. It's written by Andrew Kevin Walker, who's best known for writing one of John's favorite movies, Seven. And it's an unconventional pairing, to say the least. Uh, And the film itself is anything but conventional. It stars Paul Rudd and Patton Oswalt as two best friends, an aspiring screenwriter and an aspiring actor whose dreams of superstardom have fizzled out. So they make a plan to get famous by any means necessary, which they take to some pretty drastic levels. So John interviewed both of them at Tribeca last year. And he told us that even though it was one of the first podcasts he ever hosted, it remains one of his favorite to this date. And we will link to that podcast in the podcast post for this show. Also coming to Netflix on May 7th is Love True, which was directed by one of my favorite directors, Alma Harrell. This genre-bending documentary brings Harrell's signature poetic imagery and fascination with performance in nonfiction to three complicated real-life relationships as they unfold in the equally interesting locations of Alaska, Hawaii, and New York City. I remember Harrell saying in a QA and a last year that one of her favorite movies growing up was The Princess Bride but her film kind of blows out the myth of true love, or to blaze, as Miracle Max says. It uh, has a really amazing score by Flying Lotus, and it's executive produced by Shia LaBeouf, so a really kind of imaginative team. I saw it at Tribeca last year, and Harrell was actually on the Tribeca documentary jury this year. My interview with her uh, is almost as interesting as the movie, especially since she shot the film herself, half the time from a wheelchair with a broken back. So, again, we'll link to that
1: interview in the podcast post. So we got one filmmaker that delivered an awards acceptance speech from a hospital bed and another that shot a movie for, with a broken back from wheelchair.
0: You know what? We do what it takes in this industry. So what's coming to theaters? Oh, there's a super weird one <laughs> coming called Take Me. It's it's coming to a limited theatrical release and also streaming this week. It's directed by Pat Healy and written by Mike Makowski, who was only 23 at the time. Also executive produced by the Duplass Brothers, or the Duplass Brothers. The Duplass Brothers. Duplass. Duplass, as we say in Syracuse. No! It stars Taylor Schilling from Orange is the New Black and Pat Healy himself. It's this crazy cat and mouse film where Healy plays an aspiring entrepreneur whose business model involves staging custom-designed kidnappings for clients who long for the thrill of abduction.
1: So it's like Taken
0: meets... Well, interestingly, the director... Um, the director described it as kind of like a mix between a noir and a screwball comedy and he's like those are sister genres which I had never thought about before. I mean they seem totally opposite to me but there is something like similar in that in both of those genres this kind of like down-on-his-luck kind of guy, you know, gets in some sort of misadventure. It's just in one it takes a dark turn, and in one it takes a comic turn. So this is an interesting combo of those. It's also amazing because Healy directed and acted. This was his feature debut as a director, but he's been acting for, like, 20 years. So he brought everything to the set that he's learned, and he's been, like, you you might recognize his face when you see him, even though you might not know his name, because he's been in frickin' everything, like, He's been in every broadcast show you've ever heard of, like every version of CSI or, you know, those that are imaginable. But also all these auteur auteur films like he was in Magnolia, Paul Thomas Anderson's film and a whole bunch more. So it's kind of amazing to see the results of, you know, all that experience poured out onto the screen. Also coming out in theaters this week is Tomorrow Ever After, written, starring and directed by Ella Thier who uh, it's basically a time travel movie about a historian from the year 2592 who time travels to 2015 and she's forced to navigate the societal woes that she's only read about in history books. It's really um, kind of an imaginative film that turns uh, the sci-fi paradigms on their head. And, you know, as John says, hell of a year 2015. Hell of a year.
1: Coming to theaters May 3rd is The Last Men in Aleppo, one of the most impactful films I saw at Sundance this year. Firas Fayad's film won the World Cinema Grand Jury Prize at Sundance, and it's a window into the war-torn world of Syria, where the most courageous men and women in the world call themselves the White Helmets and risk their lives every day to save fellow citizens from bombings. I spoke to Syrian-born filmmaker Fayad, who now lives in exile and counts many of the White Helmets as personal friends. Two years ago, he reached out to filmmaker and journalist friends who still lived in Aleppo to ask if they might be interested in participating in a documentary about the White Helmets. The director of photography, Fadi Al-Halabi, along with cinematographers Thayer Mohammed and Mojahed Abahu Aloud, wanted to help tell the full story of humanity in Syria, the one the news has failed to capture again and again. Under Fayad's supervision, the cameramen followed the White Helmets to the front lines of the Civil War, documenting the people who volunteered for the most dangerous job in the world. Making the documentary, Fayad asked himself, quote, How can we make a cinematic movie inside Syria, very close to the bombings, to the war, and to the dangers? The result is like nothing you've ever seen before unless you've lived in Syria. Also coming to theaters May 5th is Berlin Syndrome, another Sundance film that I saw this year. Kate Shortland's thriller turns the female abduction story on its head. A sexy one-night stand becomes every woman's worst nightmare when Claire, played by Teresa Palmer, gets locked into her lover's apartment and becomes a pawn in his horrific psychodrama. When I spoke to Shortland, she said she, quote, wanted to make a film where the sex and violence was truthful. We certainly didn't want to make something that was really grim and victimized women. We wanted to make a film that started a conversation, where people would leave the cinema and they'd want to talk about it. We wanted to let the audience almost at times enjoy the story and then at the next moment go, whoa, what the fuck? What is happening now? That's what we try to do with
0: this podcast, too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Keep you on your toes.
0: (laughs) Anyway, we've got some upcoming uh, grant deadlines and festival deadlines for you. If you're a rising filmmaker with an original vision and from an underrepresented community and could benefit from an October through June program, check out Project Involve from Film Independent. It's a free, intensive, nine-month annual program that offers 30 up-and-coming film professionals from underrepresented communities the opportunity to hone skills, form creative partnerships, utilize free or low-cost production resources, and ultimately gain the industry access necessary to succeed as working artists. The deadline
1: for that is May 8th. The Liberty Lab for Film has a deadline coming up on May 31st. If you're a liberty-minded filmmaker and could use 100 days and 10K to make your next short, you'll want to check out this Talison Nexus Lab and Nexus is a group of Hollywood producers and writers who, in their words, share a passion for a free society. If you and your treatment are selected, You'll receive a grant for $10,000 to make your short film or web series and be paired with an established industry professional. Note that teams of up to three people can apply with one project. And if you're a producer without your own treatment, you can also apply for a producer's track, and they'll team you up with one of those accepted projects.
0: For some festival deadlines, the Hollywood Just For Shorts film and screenplay competition is due on May 5th. It's a short film and script contest that tries to give filmmakers increased global exposure. The way they do that is by sending winning short films and screenplays to their Hollywood contacts who consider your work for representation or adaptation deals. And it's $35 to enter.
1: The Nevada City Film Festival has a May 5th late deadline. It takes place in Nevada City, California from September 7th to 10th, 2017. It's been running 17 years, and the festival is often referred to as the Sundance of the Sierra got cash prizes so be sure to check it out. May 5th is also the late deadline for the New Orleans Film Festival
0: which takes place in New Orleans from October 11th to the 19th. It's one of the few film festivals that's Oscar qualifying in all three Academy accredited categories, narrative short, documentary short, and animated short and it's been recognized by Movie Maker
1: Magazine as one of the top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee every year since 2012. I can corroborate that a lot of my friends have had films play there and they say that it's an awesome community with a really great vibe, very inclusive, and a great place to network. So wrapping up, we
0: are so grateful to you as always for joining us this week. We hope you'll be back every Thursday for Indie Film Weekly with us and... Every Monday, we have our No Film School interview podcast. So, upcoming this week, Oakley Anderson Moore led a producer's roundtable at South by Southwest last month, and it's a great one. One of the producers is actually the guy who sent Parker Smith the necessary materials to make his movie Ramblin' Freak, which we did a whole another podcast about already, Super DIY Film. And this producer said that the reason he chose producing instead of directing is that while a filmmaker will spend years on a single film, I mean don't we all know about it, a doc producer will have like five or six films that they're working on in a year. So you get to facilitate a lot of projects in that role and don't get bored and maximize your creativity. So yeah, this podcast should be a good one for anyone sort of considering taking the producing route. So... As always, we'd like to ask you to subscribe to the No Film School podcast if you're an iTunes person and give us, you know, super, super high ratings. You can also catch No Film School podcast on any kind of podcast platform or application that you use. And let us know if you don't find it on yours, although we've tried to be pretty comprehensive. Meanwhile, we've linked to all of the opportunities and articles we discussed on the podcast at this week's podcast post on NoFilmSchool.com. And you can go there to read those, see our NAB coverage, and tons of other articles about the craft of filmmaking. And stay in touch. I'm at LizFilm on Twitter.
1: At ELBooter. And Jim John Jim is not with us today. But in his absence, I did it. That's right. In his absence, you can still say hello, hello
0: to him at Jim underscore John underscore Jim or Jim, 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 Jim. <laughs> And we're all at No Film School. See you next week. No telecrapes.